0: It's great to be here with you this morning, whether you're here on our Canadaigua campus, online campus, or Hopewell campus. Uh, Great to be able to uh, come and explore God's word together. As you see, uh, I'm still sitting. Uh, Foot healing is going along really well. I'm just trying to behave myself, which, as you know, is difficult for me to do. Uh, But I appreciate your prayers, and and everything's going well well there. Uh, so the cameramen get another break this week. Uh, some people So we have enjoyed having you sit, but I thought, well, the cameramen are getting a little lazy, so I'm going to have to have to stand up again and run the stage like I do. I was going to get up and run around the stage, but then I thought I might fall off the stage, and I, w- I wasn't really trusting that you. you guys wouldn't laugh at me. So, so yeah, I made the right choice. So I decided not to try that today. Uh, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we are... Uh, exploring Christ's message, which is recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. And this morning, we're actually going to start what uh, really a mini-series within the series. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the righteousness of the believer, the righteousness of the believer. And, and But before we get there, I want to go back a little bit. Let's make sure we're on the same page of where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The first week, we we looked at really what is the Sermon on the Mount? What is is Jesus teaching? And and we really uh, were able to determine that what Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount is what does it mean to be and do the things that he calls us to do as followers of Christ? And another way of saying that is that the Sermon on the Mount really describes a Christian counterculture. What is the Christian counterculture? Well, Jesus... Gives us a, a clear description of it in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And he jumps right into it. Uh, in the very second week, we looked at the Beatitudes, which are characteristics of believers, but they're not characteristics of different believers, there are several characteristics for all believers. What does a believer look like? And, and, and what, is our, what is our purpose and our priorities? And, and I said, if you remember, if we were to say, Lord, help us embody the Beatitudes, then we would embody that Christian counterculture. And it would, and it would invade every area of our life, and it would permeate in our marriages, and in our workplaces, in our schools, and, and on and on and on. And, and then last week, uh, we looked at what Jesus says coming out of the Beatitudes, He says, listen, if you're really living according to these characteristics, if these are being established in your life, and by the way, it's a growing experience. How many of you have realized that? Uh, You don't really arrive this side of heaven, but we're constantly being perfected. But then you'll be salt and light in the world. That, That wherever you find yourself, that you will be a true ambassador of Christ, sharing his love and message with the world around us. And so that brings us to where we're at this morning, which is this description of of the righteousness of the believer. And I want to begin just simply by describing, what do I mean by righteousness? What do I mean by righteousness? Well, first off, righteousness is an attribute of God. Uh, In his uprightness of person, uh, he's upright in his his personhood, his standards, in in his judgment. Another way of looking at it is that God Himself is perfectly righteous in all he says and does. He he was perfectly righteous in his creation, and his providence, and his salvation, the consummation. Every all that God is, and all that God says, and all that God does is right. There, there's nothing wrong about it. God is good and he is only good. And here in, in, in verse uh, 32.4 of Deuteronomy is really just this great summary of God's righteousness. Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. So God is the standard, God is perfect, and so he's perfectly righteous, and he, he's the standard bearer of righteousness. And, and, and as righteousness himself, he establishes not just the standard by which we are to look and be amazed, but he really does establish the standard by which we are to live. And it's these standards that Jesus describes in his Sermon on the Mount. And so this week, we're going to look at Christ's righteousness, and what is that? what are the implications of Christ's righteousness in the life of a believer— And how does that relate to something that we call the law? And so we're going to jump right in, okay? We're going to jump right in. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus is preaching, and he says, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. "'I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. "'For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, "'not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished.'" therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven for i tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven so what we're going to discover is how god's fulfill christ's fulfilling of the law directs christians in their relationship to the law and we're gonna look at it by examining three truths here's the first one found in verse 17 look at that verse with me again Matthew 5 17 do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them and so the very first truth we see in the passage is that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets now how did he do that? Well, first of all, Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law. And he did that in a couple of ways. First of all, Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to the law. We read in Hebrews 4:15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now Jesus is the only one who can say that. Are we in agreement? Like, Jesus is the only one, well, he's the only one that can say it and be honest. He's the only one that can say, i, I fulfilled every law. I haven't broken, I've have never sinned, I'm perfect. And, and Jesus kept every law perfectly, which is important because the second thing Jesus did was he took the law's punishment for our sin. The scripture's really clear, clear right? The wage of sin is? All right, let's say it loud and proud. The wage of sin is? Death. It's death, we work really hard for that. How many of you enjoy getting a paycheck? That's one we definitely don't wanna get. The wage of sin, what we've worked so hard in all the things we've done that haven't brought honor to God, is it, it, death. But the verse doesn't stop there. The verse actually ends really good. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But Jesus did something in our stead, and here is one of the greatest exchanges in life. But Jesus bore our sin. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians 3:13. 3, Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, for the wage of sin is death. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Curses anyone who hanged on a tree." So the wage of sin is death. But Jesus, being perfect, could be the only perfect sacrifice. He died in our stead. What a great exchange! We receive him. And what do we receive? We receive life. Well, Jesus also fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus offers us this insight. John records it for us in John five thirty-nine through 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying, look, you know the scriptures. You've looked through the Old Testament. You know the prophecies. And yet, even though you know the prophecies and I have fulfilled all of them, why then are you not turning to me? Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, and there's a ton of them. And he fulfilled them all perfectly. In fact, I don't have time to unpack it this morning, but the law of probabilities says that someone who just by coincidence fulfills even a, even a short person, portion of those prophecies it is near impossible. Yet to fulfill all those prophecies, Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the fact that he fulfills these prophecies is a way that shows that he fulfilled the law in the prophets. And then the third thing is this. Jesus revealed the true meaning of the law. Paul's writing about this in Romans 13, 9 through 10. And he writes, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery... You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any of the other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Remember, Jesus is asked. He says, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And here's my summary. He says, love God with everything and love others with the love God has given you. In other words, he offers us the great cheat sheet. How many of you guys like cheat sheets? You know, just like not to cheat, but just, you know what I'm saying. It's a summary there. It's a great cheat sheet. If you want to know the laws of the Old Testament, you can either memorize all of them or you can know love. If you want to know what to do, you can either have your list and sort of roll it out. Here's all the laws and I need to make this decision. Which law would I be violating if I make the wrong decision? Or you can ask the question, what would love do in this situation? Another way of asking that is, what would Jesus do in this situation? Since he's the perfect example of love and fulfillment of the law. And say, well, I should act that way. That's what I should do. And the Spirit of God directs us in our steps. And so Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He didn't come to abolish them. And by the way, there there are many a believer who sort of think Jesus did. I'll hear believers say, we're not under the law anymore. And I say, well, we're not under the law, but the law still has a play in a believer's life. The law isn't evil, Jesus has saying. He said, I came to fulfill it. Well, what place does the law play? Well, good question. He answers it. Truth number two. In Matthew 5, 18 through 19, our passage, he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here's the second truth that we find in our passage. Jesus affirms the continuing authority of the law, the continuing authority of the law. And you say, well Craig, you just said we're not under the law and you agreed with that. But there's a difference between being under the law and the law having some type of authority. And so let's look at that. First of all, the law of God, the word of God says, will stand forever. I like this verse from Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of God stands forever. The word of God stands forever. It's truth, and we're to live according to it. Every part of the law matters, 2 Timothy 3.16. It begins all scripture, and all scripture, by the way, aren't just the ones we want to memorize. They're not just the ones we like. All Scripture isn't just the New Testament, it's the entire Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. As revealed through God's Word, no part of God's will for His people will ever change. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But God's Word is is constant. It's constant. And then the third thing is that we must practice and teach the law. In verse 19, is the word therefore, and if you've been around here for a while, when we get to the word therefore, I remind us that we should ask a very crucial and simple question. When we see the word therefore, we should ask, what is it? Therefore. What is it therefore? <laughs> Anytime in scripture, what is it therefore? Why is that word placed there? Well, the therefore is in reference to what? The fact that God's word is constant. And if God's word is constant, therefore, Jesus introduces the implication for his disciples for the enduring validity of the law and his attitude for it. Jesus said this, for instance, it's recorded for us in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say if you fear me, you'll keep my commandments. He didn't say if you want to earn something, you'll keep my commandments. He says if you what? Come on, say it loud and proud. If you you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's be really clear on this. We can't work our way into salvation. Are we on the same page there? Because if God is the standard of righteousness, then I want to ask, how close have any of us gotten to that standard? Right? Pick the nicest, godliest person you know, and they still fall way short of that standard. Right? Right? Some people believe when they get to heaven, there's a cosmic scale. And if you just do more good than bad, then you're going to be able to get in. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. You can't do enough good. The wage of sin is death. But the free gift of life is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so we can't work our way into salvation. But the saved do the work. The saved do the work of cooperating with the Spirit to be sanctified. What's that mean, sanctified? It's a heavy word, but it doesn't have to be. What it means is becoming like Jesus. How like Jesus? Like, do we become God? No. We become like Jesus in his character in his love and his purpose and his priorities. That's what the scripture teaches us. That we can become greater in our capacity to love like Jesus loves. We can grow in our character. We, we can make sure that our, our priorities and our purpose aligns with Christ. And so Jesus uses the law here to address this, this total divine revelation of the Old Testament And there's three types of law that we find in the Old Testament, but we need to sort of clarify because that helps us know what Jesus is really calling us to. And so I don't want to get into the weeds here, but it's important we understand these things, especially when we're reading through the Old Testament. There's three types of law mentioned in the Old Testament. The first is civil law. Civil law in the Old Testament is specific to ancient Israel, dealing with community justice, such as Making restitution. In other words, there's laws in the Old Testament that were for the people of Israel, and they were legal laws. Like we have legal laws, speed limits, and so forth. There's ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, and they govern worship in ancient Israel. Animal sacrifices, you know? You may be asking the question, well, why don't we sacrifice animal sin offerings in church? First of all, because we'd be closed down. Um, But there's an actual deeper reason why we don't do that, and we're going to look at that in a minute. Then there's the moral law. And the moral law in the Old Testament is for ancient Israel and for all people at all times. For instance, the Ten Commandments. Like, to not steal isn't just an Old Testament law, it's a New Testament one. It's for today, too, right? And, and so the Ten Commandments are still in play. And so but how do we clear, well, think of it this way. The civil law was for one people at one time. The civil law, one people, one time, Israel. The ceremonial law was completed in Christ at one time for all people. The reason we don't still offer sacrifices is because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Every sacrifice that's spoken of in the Old Testament points to Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice. All the the sacrifices in the Old Testament, as perfect as they were, were not totally perfect. Not one lamb, not one sheep. No offering was totally perfect. Jesus, remember, going back to he fulfilled all the law, totally perfect. So he didn't owe anything, he paid it for us. And we don't make sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the one time sacrifice for all people who receive him as Savior and Lord. That's why we don't work our way into salvation, Jesus already did the work and on the cross he said it is finished. It's a finished work, nothing needs to be added to it. But Christians who love God will desire to allow the work of the Spirit of God to make them more and more like Jesus because the moral law is for all people at all times. And so when we look at the moral, morality in scripture, and as Jesus will unpack for us in his message, the Sermon on the Mount here, in the next few weeks, the morality he describes is still in play for us. Now, as much as we don't like it when we think about it personally, how many of you like it when other people live morally? Come on now. Like when I do something wrong, I want mercy. When you do something wrong, I want justice. Right? Right? And God says, no, 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 mercy and justice. Let's, 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 let's focus on these things. And So it leads us to the third truth. Let's not look at the third truth. It's found in our last verse there in, in, chapter, in chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus speaking, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, I just believe that there was an audible gasp in the crowd when that was said. Because the Pharisees did a really good job of showing how good they were. Like, they were really good with that. Like, their mask of goodness was really profound. They would do things like pay people to come and follow them on the streets so that when they prayed, they would sound gongs and stuff as a way to say, hey, stop, stop, a Pharisee's praying. You know? It's like sometimes you're in a group of people and someone prays and they're like, hey, shh, they're praying. And I'm like, well, pray then. You know, I mean, what's, what's going on here? Pray. You, you don't, I mean, what in the world? God's not hard of hearing. He'll hear you. Pray. <laughs> right? Well, the Pharisees wanted to make sure everyone was quiet looking at them because they, they, they were righteous. They were good people. They would pray prayers like this. Lord, thank you that, that, that I am in righteous in your eyes and I'm not a sinner like this one. Can you imagine that? How would you like to be been near them, And you were the one. it would be like me saying, Lord, thank you, but I'm so righteous and not like Pastor Chris. You know, I mean, that would be horrible. That would be horrible. It reminds me, here's a rabbit trail. But it reminds me, Wesley and Whitfield, they're two contemporaries talking church history here. They both had some disagreements on a few minor biblical issues, and they were minor biblical issues. And the news media knew that, the newspaper people. And so one day, a newspaper reporter wanted to cause a problem between Wesley and Whitfield. You thought that was a 2021 thing, for the news wanted to cause problems between us. But, but it happened way back then. And so the news reporter asked, asked Wesley, he said, do you believe you'll see Whitfield in heaven? That's a, that's a pretty good question. Wesley says No. Whitfield will be way closer to the throne than I will be. Good answer. I say it to say that I'll see Chris in heaven maybe, but he'll be closer to the throne than I am. So, so I appreciate him so much. But, but you, you get the point of what the, what the Pharisees are doing, right? Jesus will at one point call them whitewashed tombs. You know what that means, right? That they're really disgusting and dirty on the inside. On the outside, they're trying to make themselves look really good. Spiritually speaking, I heard it once said, that You can put a lipstick on a pig, but it doesn't mean it's not a pig. And they were dressing themselves up and acting all righteous, but deep inside they were, they were dark. Their heart wasn't right. And so, what does Jesus proclaim? Here's the third truth there needs to be a greater righteousness. I think there's this audible gasp that would have happened in the crowd going, Greater than the Pharisees? And Jesus goes, You bet. See, the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law was self-serving, incomplete, and merely external. They were able to put on a good act, but it wasn't founded in anything true. The righteousness Christ calls the believer to is greater than the Pharisees because it's deeper. It's a righteousness of the heart. The Pharisees were content with their external, incomplete, and self-serving righteousness. And Jesus is just pointing that out. In fact, many a person, by the way, strays away from a church because they go, my goodness, if, I'm gonna, if I have to be as perfect as you, because some of us don't share our real story and our real journey, but that may not be for me. Paul, when he describes us, he says God's place is glory in earthen vessels. The actual Greek there says cracked pots. <laughs> That's how good we are. We're, we're cracked pots, you know? And he says, but the glory shines through showing that in our weakness that God's strength is in his forgiveness and his mercy and his power is present. doesn't mean we purposely mess up. It just means we're honest with people. Sometimes I'll hear someone preach a message and I thought, my goodness, if I was as perfect as that preacher, I would do that too. Come on now. No one in this room is perfect. In fact, right now, look at the person next to you. You're not perfect. Come on, guys, don't be spineless. You've been waiting to do it your whole life. You're not perfect, but you know what? In Christ, we can be being perfected. Amen, church? Amen. We can be becoming the people of Christ. We can be examples to the world around us that there's only one perfect, and that's God himself. But through the power of his spirit, we're striving to represent him in the life in which we live, not out of fear, not to earn anything, but because we love him and because his love has filled us. See, Jesus looks inwardly He looks at mind and motive. So Jesus said things like this. He said, some of you have heard it said that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. And by the way, any of us married are thankful that someone's there. And and, and he says, but listen, if you've thought about it, you've done it. Whoa. Come on now, church. Don't steal, but if you thought about it, you've done it. What's he saying? Your heart. Everything starts in the heart. Is Jesus taking control of our heart? See, it's it's easy to say yes to Jesus as Savior. It's difficult to say, and by the way, you're Savior and Lord. Have your way in me. I'm not perfect, but I'm being perfected. The Lord looks at the heart. And we'll never be perfect inside side of paradise, but that doesn't give us an excuse not to allow the Lord to do this perfecting work in us. A deeper obedience from the heart is what he's calling us to, where we, we lay ourselves at the feet of Christ and allow him to make us more and more into his image. And, and sometimes I do well during the day, and I'm thankful, and then there's those holy ouch moments. You know, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we don't talk much about is conviction. You realize that's a gift, don't you? Conviction is just as much a gift as physical pain. You say, "Well, why is physical pain a gift?" Because if you don't have physical pain, you're going to hurt yourself a whole lot. How many of you have hurt yourself working out and go, "I probably shouldn't do that again," <laughs> right? The younger people are like never. You wait, it'll happen. The holy ouch of the Holy Spirit's conviction is the same way. Heading the wrong way, I've got a better plan for you. I don't know why it is that sometimes in in the church we act like the work of the Holy Spirit's good when they're going way to go, and it's not good when He's going not the way to go. But God loves us so much, He says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He he leads us in a path that leads to life. I've had friends who have said things to me like, you know what, I'd become a Christian, but I just don't want to give up on so much fun. You know? And then they share about their life, and I go, I don't really seem all that fun. I mean, you're doing these things and you still don't have any peace. You don't have any real power. You're alone. And what does Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I haven't come to steal like the world does. I've come to give you life, life Abundant. What's that abundant life? Does it mean we don't have problems? Of course we still have problems. It just means that he does what? He fills us with his peace when we learn to trust him. Do you notice that? I don't have peace when I'm not trusting. So there's no peace in my life. Guess what I know? God, help me trust you. He's, he's really good at being God and answering such prayers. When I'm feeling alone, I'm like, Lord, I know it's not a feeling, but just remind me that you're with me and that you plus me is always a majority. It's a different way of living. It's a Christian counterculture that speaks of what life looks like when, when, when God's kingdom literally comes on earth as it is in heaven as we prepare for a place where it will be perfect and will be perfected. Isn't that good news? I like to check things off my to-do list. You guys know that one day perfecting will be all checked off my to-do list. This is not that day, by the way. This is not that day. See, it's easy to cheapen grace by somehow disliking the law. And and I hear Christians do that. They put the law against love and say, no, no, God's love, and so the law doesn't have a place. No, no, I don't work my way into salvation, but because I have a relationship with Jesus Christ and I love him, I want to walk like him. Because I love him, not out of fear, not out of trying to earn anything. I've already gotten everything I need in Christ. But out of love, I, I just want to know him and make him known. Paul writes it to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him, he's speaking of Jesus, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that through whom he might be the righteousness of God. I pray that verse over my life almost on a daily basis as I pray the, the, through the armor of God and that breastplate of righteousness and realize what does that scripture really teach us? That, that Jesus, again, the great exchange He didn't need to die, but he did, and that when he dies, the scripture says we're filled with his righteousness. As a matter of fact, Paul describes it this way. He says, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, what's that really mean? Well, how righteous is Jesus? 100%, right? Not 100% like some people say. Give it 110%. That's not even mathematically possible. 100%. Jesus is 100% righteous. And so if we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and God looks at us, how righteous does he see us? You're scared to say it, 100%. See, we're able to spend eternity with him not because of our righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness. Are you catching that? So before Jesus talks about the righteousness of a believer and what, how a believer is supposed to act, Jesus says, but I want, you need to understand. <laughs> it, it's not to earn anything. I've already done the work. It's out of love for me and others. That's what becoming like Jesus is about. And I've heard people talk about sanctification and speak of it as if it's a dirty word. It's not a dirty word, it's a beautiful word. That we've been made right with God. That's justification, right? Made right with God. But this work that he's doing today is sanctification, where he's making us more and more like Jesus and his character, his love, his purpose, his priorities. And one day we'll be glorified, work finished, perfecting, checked off. I love that part. But we're not there yet. So Jesus says, what's the Christian counterculture look like? Well, it doesn't look like the Pharisees who put a mask on and act like they're all that when they're not. But it doesn't look like those who come to Christ and say, well, I'm saved from grace, so it doesn't matter what I do. Social righteousness matters. Justice in our culture matters. Caring for our neighbors matters. I say this a lot, and it's just because it's so true, and it's one of the key questions I'm asked by married couples, and that is, what can I do to have a better marriage? And I'll say, well, where are you at with Jesus? And they say, no, I didn't ask that. I asked, how can I better my marriage? And I say, where are you at with Jesus? And you may remember when we looked at the Beatitudes, I said, look, I can't imagine a married couple, a husband and wife, both working toward the Beatitudes and not having a marriage that flourishes. But I can imagine a couple where I said to him, you know what, just go on a date night once a week. Do you know what a date night looks like for a couple that's not getting along? Hell. (laughs) On earth. You say, did he just say that? Yeah, I did. I I mean that. If they don't like each other, spending an evening with a meal and talking about life is not going to be enjoyable. Come on now, let's be real. Two people humbling themselves before God, seeking to love him and love each other. That's a different meal, where there's forgiveness and where there's a desire to grow. That's not just for marriage, that's for your friendships, your workplace, your schools. See, I believe God wants to literally do what he asks us to pray, have his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, but for that to happen, it's gotta happen in us first. And Jesus says it can because I've already paid the price. See, the greater righteousness Jesus calls his followers to is testified to by the law and prophets that Jesus fulfilled. (laughs) It's credited to us by faith in Christ. It's worked in us by the Holy Spirit. And it's the only righteousness that will get us into heaven, his. And so as we start to talk about the righteousness of the believer, we can talk about the things that we're to do because we understand who we are. We're his. Bought with a price. The greatest demonstration of love of all time wasn't just words, it was Jesus showing it. Dying for our sins, resurrected for our salvation. So when we talk about the righteousness of Christ perfect and clothing us, that's freedom church, that's power. That gives us the freedom to walk into tough situations and know God's got our back. He's working. So I wonder this morning, where are you with Jesus? If you've yet to receive him as Lord and Savior, that's your next step. But if you're in relationship with him, what's God calling you to? You know the three questions we've been looking at throughout this series. You know, how are we gonna respond? What's our next step? Are we willing to take it with Jesus? Whatever your next step is, are you willing to take it with him? And will you let us as a church family help you take your next step, whatever it is? Jesus, Jesus the perfect one, came and died in our step, so that in him we can have life abundantly. Let's pray. Father God, in a moment, we're going to take part in, in communion as a church family. And Lord, there's nothing mystical about communion. It's a time of remembrance. Remembering what you did for us. That you died on the cross for our sins, that so you are resurrected for our salvation. That you've gifted us with the indwelling of your spirit in our life that we're never alone you're always with us god i just thank you for the fact that you didn't just tell us you loved us but you moved into our neighborhood you came to where we are and you paid the price for all of our sins it it doesn't matter what we've done it doesn't matter where we find ourselves even at this moment the key question is are we in relationship with you and so, Lord, I pray, whether it's someone here in the candidate with campus, online campus, Hopewell campus, if they have yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, why not right now in this moment? To say yes to you as Savior and Lord of their life. But they would enter into that relationship that they've been created to be a part of. And God, for each of us who have made that decision, whether it was days ago, years, doesn't matter. What is that next step you're calling us to take with you? And Lord, I pray we'd be willing to take it. Thank you for the amazing gift of your word. Being able to hear this message that, you, that Christ preached 2,000 years ago nearly, and, and yet it's, it's so applicable today. Lord, may we not just hear your words, may we obey. Not out of fear not out of an attempt to earn anything, but simply because we love you. What do you give the God who has everything? The answer is us. We just want to love you back. And so, Lord, I pray that as you've blessed our gathering, that in a moment when we scatter throughout this region, Lord, that you allow us to be a blessing to our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends at school, that they too will know the amazing joy of being in relationship with you. And we give you the praise for what you're doing, what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.